Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Welcome into episode 35 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Winningham. You can find us on Twitter at Five Reasons Sports. You can download us on iTunes if you have Apple, but also on Google Play if you have Android. We also have a YouTube feed now, so be sure to check that out. You can get that through our Twitter feed, and make sure you go through our library so you subscribe and get all of our episodes for free. One of the things we've been doing on the podcast lately has been bringing guests in, bringing in experts. There is nobody more expert on the Miami Heat than Ira Winderman. I used to work with him. I used to work against him. Uh, we've been all kinds of different roles here. You can hear him not only on 560 QAM from time to time, but also obviously you can read him on sunsentinel.com. Ira, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be the resident expert of the moment uh, until Tom D'Angelo or someone else comes along. But I'm glad to be here, guys. All right. What we're going to do here, uh, what we do on the pod, Ira, is we try to break things into sort of, a, and, and again, you, you guys do some of this stuff uh, with your newspapers now. We try to break them into sort of bite-sized morsels, right? Sure. Like allow, allow people to digest the information. And so what we do here is we break things into five parts. And what we thought about, because you know we don't really know for sure as we tape this on a Sunday night, where the Heat are going to fall. You know, it's going to be six or it's going to be seven. If the Heat win their next game, Milwaukee loses their next game, then the Heat would, would end up in the sixth spot. But we don't know who's going to end up on the other side of that because we don't know whether sure. or not Philadelphia is going to hold on to three. So we didn't want to make this too team specific. We wanted sure. to take a look at the Heat players. And I put a poll on at Five Reason Sports and said, you know, who do you think is the most important player to the Heat in the upcoming playoffs? And the results uh, were a little surprising to me, actually. I put four players on there. We're going to debate all four of these guys. I put, in no particular order, I put Wade, Whiteside, Dragic, and Richardson. And not surprisingly, because this team does not have one superstar, it was pretty split. But the order that it came in was Dragic first, Wade second, Whiteside a close third, and then Richardson at about 19 or 20%. Was fourth, So all four guys had a certain constituency, but Dragic ended up in the lead. And so we're going to start with him for part one. And there was a lot of talk a couple of years ago about how Goran had not really played in a lot of playoff games, right? Like he had the incredible moment against San Antonio a few years back when he was a son, but had not played in the playoffs a lot. We saw him in the playoffs two years ago and didn't play particularly well against Charlotte. And then he picked it up. He had a couple of games uh, in the Toronto series. What does Goran Dragic, in your view, Ira, need to do in the postseason for this team to have a chance to advance? He needs to be the streak scorer. He needs to be the guy that when the Heat went, when we know, look, Ethan, in the playoffs, other teams, the way they scout, the way they break you down, they're going to take away your number one, number two, number three, top play calls. They know what you're doing. So you have to be that guy. Eric Spolster always uses this word, and I know we'll get into a lot of Spoisms here, ignitable. Who's going to be the ignitable Heat player? Guys, I almost think Goran Dragic is the only one who can be. I mean, I'm being deferential to Dwayne, he's coming off the bench a little more. But if you were to tell me, Ira, who's the guy most likely to score 10, 12, 14 straight Miami Heat points in this series, I would tell you almost that they're at a point right now 
I don't think it could be anyone else right now but Goran Dragic because I don't think they have another player who I can look at and say, well, absolutely he's going to score this many points or he's going to be that kind of player. So I think if you're talking about who's going to be quote-unquote ignitable for the Heat, I think he's your only option. For me, the thing that is most interesting about Dragic is that the Miami Heat are going into a playoffs where if they face Cleveland, if they face Philly, which seems to be the most likely matchup to this sure. point, what you saw on Friday night from both of those teams is an amount of offensive firepower that I'm not sure that the Miami Heat can keep up with. So to me, where Goran Dragic comes in in that equation is getting Miami easy baskets because he, for me, is the only one that really likes to take the ball off a rebound and get in transition try and score quickly and I feel like the Miami Heat because they're going against these teams like Philly like Cleveland that are just have no problem at the moment dropping 120 while that probably won't keep up in the playoffs and I think the Heat strategy will be in some respect to try and slow the game down a bit and prevent games from getting away from them I do think they have to figure out ways to manufacture easier points and there are two players that can do that Whiteside with offensive rebounding and Goran Dragic in transition playing at pace so I think that's Goran Dragic's role to play in the series. And you know what, Chris, I would agree with that. And and again, the rebounding, whether it's Hassan Whiteside getting the offensive rebounds, but even if Goran is going to get out and go, you have to get those defensive rebounds. So the rebounding, whether it's James Johnson, undersized power forward, Hassan Whiteside, and we'll get to him a little bit later, a little bit lethargic at this point, that's going to make defensive rebounding critical. Not not that it always isn't anyway, but to get Goran out on those one-man breaks. He is the one guy in this team where if he's going one on two or one on three, you don't say, oh, no. You basically say, oh, go, because he creates a way. No one drops the shoulder like Goran Dragic to create spacing. No one shoves his man out of the way so subtly, usually with the trail referee behind, so we can't even see. So I agree with that. Goran has to be great. And Ethan mentioned the Toronto series. And Ethan, I know you could talk to this also. Goran was so deferential when Dwayne Wade was first here. It was just a case that he was going to make Dwayne the guy and he was going to step out of the way. That's why when people ask me, might Dwayne Wade start in the playoffs? No way. Because, Ethan, you can address this. By Dwayne simply being there two years ago, Goron didn't want to be the man because he felt it wasn't his place to be the man. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, that is, look, Goran's personality, and uh, we've had this conversation on the pod before, but when I ran into Goran at Family Fest and he told me, you know, he w- didn't really want to do another All-Star game because it was too crowded, <laughs> that sort of speaks to Goran's personality. Yeah. He's just not the kind of person who needs the spotlight, wants the spotlight. And again, you look at his relationship with Dwayne, he has been deferential to Dwayne from the very start. I mean, since mm-hmm. Goran was traded to Miami. And so I agree with you. And we're going to get into Dwayne in more depth. But I, I, I would think that Eric's going to leave Dwayne on the bench and, and again, try to separate them as much as possible, at least until the last five or six minutes of games. Uh, going back to that Toronto series, here's the other difference on this one. In that playoffs two years ago, the two point guards that Goran faced were Kemba Walker and Kyle Lowry. And you remember the, the way that Kemba worked him for certain periods of that series against Charlotte. The one positive of facing Cleveland or Philadelphia is they don't have that type of point guard. I mean, because Ben Simmons is playing point for Philadelphia, but obviously Goran's not going to be guarding him. So you're talking about a little bit of an easier matchup for Goran, whether it's George Hill, you know, who's a good player, but not the kind of guy who's going to go off on a scoring spree against you. And then, you know, a TJ McConnell or, you know, potentially Markel Fultz. I mean, we'll see how much he plays for Philadelphia, but it's a more manageable matchup 
for Goran on the defensive end, which I think will save him a little bit to be more of a scorer. And you look at his playoff numbers from two years ago, they weren't bad. I mean, he averaged 16 and a half points. He shot 44% from the field, 35% from three. So, but there were just a lot of ups and downs in there. But I'm, I'm with you, Ira. He needs to be aggressive. I mean, they can't go back into the same thing where it's just rely on Dwayne to save us because, again, every year that they do that, Dwayne's a little bit older and is right. just too much of a burden to put on him. I guess the question, Ira, on, on this going forward on it, do you think that they'll be able to get into a pace game with Philadelphia or Cleveland? Will they want to get in a pace oh, game? Because well, I know that's where Goran's at yeah. their best. That's two different questions. Can they get into a pace game? Anyone can get into a pace game because a pace game could be running up and down and taking bad shots and missing bad shots. Do they want to get into a pace game? I don't think so, Ethan. I think that, you know, people confuse sometimes Goran's one-man fast break with playing fast. And Goran is smart enough what he has to to pull the ball out. But except for him in transition, there is no other pace game. James Johnson likes to play in the open court, but he's not going to push the ball that well. We saw it didn't end well in that one loss up in Cleveland when he had the last shot there. So I think it's what you're going to see is Goran's going to push the ball. If it's there, he'll attack. If not, he'll bring it out. But there's only one way for the Heat to beat the Cavaliers. There's only one way for the Heat to beat the Sixers and maybe to beat anyone. And that's that low-scoring slog of a game that's so untelegenic, except that's how they win their games. That's how they played Houston, for example, this season. That's how they played Golden State for half a game and three quarters of a game. So so if you're saying, are the Heat going to play in the playoff games in the 120s or 110s? Well, they might play them there, but they're not going to win them there. I don't understand that, though, Ira, because you look at the sort of guard and wing heavy team that they have. I, yeah. I just think that with James Johnson and Justice Winslow, if either one of them is playing small ball four, you could go up and down the floor. Richardson and Tyler Johnson and Dragic and even Roddy Magruder when he plays. I understand Wade and Whiteside aren't really built for pace games, and you could probably argue that Olenek's not either, but are you surprised that the Heat don't play a bit more with pace? Because I feel like that's something that their roster could be tailor-made to do. Yeah, but I think you look, Chris, at the, at the rotations and the other team, and you say, your guys could do that. Are they going to do it better than Larry Nash Jr.? Are they going to do it better than Jordan Clarkson? Are they going to do it better than the other guys? Each of this matchup, will have its own metronome, its own pace, based on the opposition. And that's where Eric will sort of draw the line. Is he doing like Pat Riley? Where he, remember that great quote Pat Riley used to have? I'm going to slow this thing to a crawl if I have to. The Heat's never going back to that. We know that. The game has evolved too much. You are not going to win playoff game 79-76 anymore. And if you think you are, you're going to see that on the scoreboard at the end of the third quarter. But I think, Chris, it's a case of each individual matchup. And most of these matchups that I'm looking now of all the Heat possibilities – I just think the other team has guys who do that better than the Heat. And Ethan referenced it. You put Markel Fultz and his speed in there. That's another detriment when you're going against Philly. Now, if Philly's going to have Bellinelli and Ilya Sova and some of their bigs out there, yes, in those moments you can. But I'm not so sure for 30, 40, 48 minutes you can. All right, let's get to our second guy. And first thing, before we go on, do any of you guys, because I don't, do either of you guys identify Goron as the most important player for the Heat in the playoffs? I have a reason for the guy that I'm picking, but it's not going to be Dragic. Well, it's interesting because in my SunSentinel.com and SunSentinel.com, I rated the Heat's most valuable player. And to me, it was a runaway for Goron based on his season's body of work. But even like Chris mentioned, Goron is not the most unique player in most series. He's a very nice player. He's a contributing player. But usually you win series and you win games because you have something uniquely different than the other team. 
I think we'd all agree Goran is not so uniquely different that of his skill sets, he's the de- definitive best or most unusual in the league. So I think from what Goran, we'd all agree you're expecting and have to have is consistency. But I don't know if he's ever going to be the ultimate difference maker in a game or especially in a series. I agree 100%. I, I think the, the player I'll be picking is someone who is more along those lines. Yeah, me too. So we'll get to him in a second. I don't want to give it away quite okay. yet. I don't I don't know if it's this particular player, but we're going to move on to number two. And it was second in the poll, which was which was Dwayne Wade. And, I, you know, there's a couple of reasons I think that people would pick Dwayne. I mean, one is obviously uh, he's the guy that people are counting on to deliver in clutch situations. So if you define someone who is most important, you know, someone might look at it and say, well, who's going to be taking the shots at the end of the game? And it's likely going to be Dwayne in most situations. So I think that's part of it. And then the second part is just pedigree, just generally that if Dwayne is Dwayne, that, you know, he's your most important player. Now, I'm not picking him because I'm picking someone else. And I got a feeling that you guys might pick the same guy. Sure. Uh, but I want to get to some of the specifics with Dwayne since he's been here. We, we did an entire pod on this with Manny uh, a few weeks ago, Ira, where sure. we we're kind of looking at the effect that Dwayne's had on other players. Now, as we come into this, we're talking right now, he's played 19 games for the Heat. He's had some moments. Clearly, the Philadelphia game, the entire thing was a moment that he had the 27 points in the last second shot. But if you look at his net rating right now, he's a minus two with the Heat so far. A 101.8 offensive rating, 103.8 defensive rating. So the Heat has been, it's been this interesting phenomenon, Ira, because the Heat's been much better offensively since he's arrived. Like, the numbers bear that out pretty clearly. But they haven't necessarily been that much better offensively with him on the court. How do you sort of evaluate how he's affected other guys on the team so far? This is what I would do if I was Eric Spolstra. I would put a split screen up on a video board when they're getting ready for their series. And I'd have Dwayne Wade on one side. And I'd put a slide of Rodney Magruder on the other and tell his players this. For Dwayne Wade's first 20 minutes every game, I want you to think that that guy is that guy. And stop (laughs) deferring to Dwayne Wade except at the end. Because until the end of games, Dwayne is not the player right now where he's that dominant force that he has to be the number one option every possession that he's in the game. That's where the Heat are bogging down when they're looking at him at that. Then I would go to a full screen, and Eric and I tell the players, but in the final two minutes, this guy is not Rodney Magruder. This guy is going to the Hall of Fame. That's when you defer. I think what's happened to the Heat is that pullback from everything they run, from their continuity, from their dribble handoff stops when Dwayne, honestly, guys, walks to the scorer's table. That's been a detriment to this team. They have to tell this guy, this is your closer, but this can't be your carrier the entire game. I think if they get to that point, they'll be better off. I think if they can get Dwayne more to lineups where he has someone who can help him defensively, you know, he has those great lobs to Hassan, but a lot of times he's playing with Kelly Olenek. Because you know what? I know this sounds unfair almost, But you're going to have to hide Dwayne defensively also in the playoffs because don't kid yourself. With all the respect that every coach that he played, whether it's Brett Brown, whether it's Tyron Lue, whether it's someone else, they're going to talk up Dwayne. And you know in their strategy meetings they're going to also say, and when he's on the court, go against him because this guy is also 36 years old. But to me, the thing about Dwayne Wade, and I kind of learned this lesson in 2016 when I was kind of having a go at the Heat for relying on him so much, is – 
that I do think that Dwayne Wade, and he's talked about it from a a sort of different perspective, which is the idea of playing for moments at this point, playing for that game like against Philadelphia when he gets the winning shot and and 27 points in the game. But I do think that Dwayne Wade, and I went to a ton of games from kind of 2013 to 2016, and you can tell even kind of early in that descent that he was kind of taking plays and quarters off. He was being very economical about his movement, particularly on defense. And I do think that once the playoffs start, he does have the ability and the desire to ratchet up his effort and his exertion in a game. And if you're telling him that he's got to play 22 minutes, 24 minutes, and then close the game for us, I do think he is capable of being a quality player on both ends. And while, yes, I I looked at the numbers, Ira, and the Heat aren't just bad, but they're pretty bad on offense with Dwayne Wade in first halves, and then that improves a lot in the fourth quarter. But... I do think that he has the ability to ramp it up now in the postseason. And I do think if we're talking about second and third gears, he's certainly someone that has that way more than anyone else on the Heat. And it's actually why I'm going to surprise you both and say he is my most important player in the series is because if he's going to be the one with the ball in his hands at the end of the game, and if he's the one that's whether we like it or not, going to be the player that other players on the Heat defer to, that he has the biggest role to play in the series, in any series. Yeah, but Chris, he has to carry them to that moment. In other words, to get to a moment of truth, you have to play the game so you can create a moment of truth. Obviously, we know that he does nothing but play clutch games during the regular season, a little different in the playoffs when teams will look to stop at you. You have to get to that point. But here's the issue I have with you, Chris, as I put on your Mr. Analytics hat. What's the worst shot in basketball? It's that mid-range jumper. What is Dwayne Wade's bread and butter mostly? His mid-range jumper. Every time Dwayne shoots a mid-range or a long two, it's I not a three a for inside. Wayne Ellington. It's not a three for Goron. Yeah, exactly. It's not a three for Goron. It's not a three for, you know, for even Tyler Johnson. And Dwayne's attack moments, and yeah, you could look this up, he's not the attack dunk guy. I mean, he has a few, but it's not the same. So do you want to rely, like you pointed out, on those 22 minutes a game of 18 minutes of looking for mid-range jumpers? Because, again, the Sixers with Ilyasova, with Bellinelli, with Covington, with Saric, they have three-point shooters. We know the Cavs, I mean, for their playoff runs the last three years, have been unbelievably three-point centric. So I'm just worried, if you turn the offense to Dwayne Wade, are you making the cardinal sin of basketball of trading twos for threes? The interesting question to me with Dwayne, too, is also, like you said, who he'll guard. Because we've seen some of these moments where, you know, he's had, you know, the shot blocks and the mm-hmm. things that, you know, remind you how good he is at that. But I'm looking at the two teams, and there's some matchups that would be favorable for him. For instance, if Cleveland goes with its current lineup, which right now they're playing what Hood and Hill on the backcourt, I know they just moved Jeff Green into the starting right. lineup, and they're going to make a decision between Nance and Thompson around LeBron as their backup at the five spot. But, you know, for right now, it looks like, you know, you might get Dwayne matched up with, say, coming off the bench with, say, a Corver or a J.R. Smith. I mean, those are both matchups that he can handle, right? Even at this stage. I mean, neither of, I mean, Corver's going to run him off a bunch of screens, but at least you're not talking about the fleetest of foot there. And J.R. Smith is a shell of the player that he used to be. Philadelphia is interesting because, like you said, I don't know what they're going to do with Fultz. 
And we don't know how many minutes he's going to play, but that changes the equation somewhat. If they're going to play Fultz with McConnell, if they're, you know, go smaller, I think like, for instance, I think Dwayne can guard Reddick. It's the same situation as, as Corver, because again, a, a bunch of screens, but you know, with Fultz, I mean, that's, you know, just in terms of a speed advantage, that would be a challenge for Dwayne. But the other question I have too, Ira is, you know, we talk about him not starting and I agree with you. I think Eric's going to keep him on the bench, mm-hmm. but does he up the minutes? Because you know, in the playoffs, I mean, even though the season was more spread out this season, and then past seasons, you know, in the playoffs, it's really spread out. And you know how Eric feels about Dwayne. I mean, Eric right. has rerun that quote to this year that he gave me three years ago about I'll go to my grave with sure. Dwayne, Dwayne taking the shot at the end of the game. Is Eric going to start pushing Dwayne's minutes to 30, 31, 32, 33, just because, again, he's not Rodney Magruder, well, he's Dwayne well, Wade? Uh, again, I'd almost answer it this way by answering with a player who – even if you did a 10 things podcast, we probably wouldn't get into here. And that's this. What the heck has happened to Tyler Johnson? What the heck has happened to his growth curve where you felt so comfortable, especially when he was in reserve last year with James Johnson? He does, Remember last year, Tyler Johnson always finished games. I think for most of the season, he led the NBA in fourth quarter minutes. Now it's almost like you can send him home after the third quarter. So I think there's always multiple parts to these rotation equations. And to me, with Dwayne Wade, how many minutes Dwayne Wade gets could be in direct correlation to Tyler Johnson. Tyler comes out every game, hits two three-pointers early in the game, and that's often the last you see of him. So I think Dwayne's minutes will totally come down to Tyler Johnson and whether there's any sort of revival there. Because if there's not, how long can you write Tyler Johnson? That's one guy that's really surprised me this year. You know he's going to that $19 million season next year. You want to feel more comfortable. And instead, if you're asking me to even line up the Heat's guards in a Five Reasons podcast, I I might have him in fifth place. I do want to actually emphasize your point, Ira, because I mentioned that I die a little inside on Dwayne Wade's mid-range jumpers. Well, I just looked at the numbers on NBA.com slash stats, and it's actually more inefficient than even your average NBA mid-range jumper since joining the Heat and over the course of this 2017-18 season. So with the Heat, he's 33.3% on shots greater than 10 feet. If you factor out the three-point percentage, the number gets a little bit better. I'm not saying a lot a bit better, but he's 9 for 38 on threes since coming to Miami. On overall jumpers greater than 10 feet, he's 33% on mid-range. So in between 10 and and the three-point arc, it's 37.3%. That's just flatly inefficient. And if that's just going to be the the bulk of the offense when he's in the game, the Heat are going to lose, but... The problem is, is that every time I've done this and every time I've gotten yelled at for criticizing Dwayne Wade and his shot selection, he sticks it right in my face in the final minute of a game. So uh, that's that's just just how it's going to be. We're not arguing that. I agree with everyone here. At the end of the game, I am as comfortable with Dwayne getting the ball as anyone. I have no issue with that. Well, we can get into that after, but what I'm saying is until that point, I think that he'd have higher percentage options, better match a three-for-three options, or better point-blank options that we'll get to next when you talk about that also. So for me, there's two Dwayne Wade elements. There's Dwayne Wade's minutes 1 through 46 and Dwayne Wade minutes 47, 48, or knowing the heat this year, going up to 53. I still feel comfortable in those moments because you know why? Factual a good look, where sometimes we've seen with Josh Richardson and James Johnson and other guys at the end of games, they couldn't even manufacture a look, let alone get the basket. 
So let me ask you, Ira, before we move on to our third sure. guy. Now, I, Chris has identified Dwayne as, as his most important player. We both agree it's not Dragic. Without giving away who it is, is it Dwayne for you? It is not Dwayne for me because I believe there's more than just two minutes of a game. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. And if it is Dwayne for me, then that really says something about the 2018 Miami Heat. Okay, we'll be right back with Ira Winderman, but for now, a quick break. This week on the Balls Cast, we debate whether or not heat culture matters. They talk about certain players don't want to come here because of it. Yeah, those guys. (laughs) Right, but those guys are good. Miami Dolphins CEO Tom Garfinkel talks new uniforms. You know, the tweaks are, I think, make us look more like the Miami Dolphins of of old. And then we make them speak in a German accent. Excuse me, I need a bottle of your finest champagne pop since the Garfinkel room immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, we share our stories about our worst dates ever. She probably used the N-word like seven times. This week on the Balls Cast... All right, so let's get to number three here, and I'm going to give this away right at the start. To me, this is the most important player for the Heat in the playoffs because we talk about a guy who can make them different, who can take over a game if he is so inclined. And that is always the caveat that needs to be added here. And that was the third choice by people in our poll, which was Hassan Whiteside. And I, this is the conversation we had here. I, I, Chris and I, I know you've talked about this quite a bit on radio. Chris and I sort of bounced this around for 45 minutes the other day, so I won't bore you with all of it. But basically what the thing with Hassan is some people will look at that and say that's crazy, a guy who hasn't played in the majority of fourth quarters this year, to say he's the most important guy in a potential series. But I look at both of these series and moving forward against sure. Cleveland, against Cleveland. Okay. No, they don't have a traditional five. If they're going to be starting Kevin love there, but clearly if they're going to be starting Kevin love there, Hassan's going to need to get out on the perimeter and guard Kevin love. And that's something that, that they're going to need to deal with. And on the other side, Provided that he gets back healthy, and and I would assume he's going to, before the playoffs start, Hassan has to be as motivated for Joel Embiid as he was in the regular season matchup that he dominated, or else the Heat are going to get throttled in that series. So to me, it's, it's Hassan because Hassan makes them different, and beyond that, the thing that you need to be able to at least compete with LeBron in a series, if it ends up being Cleveland, you need multiple perimeter defenders who are not afraid of him. Doesn't mean they're going to stop him, but will at least challenge him. I do believe that he'd have a couple of those guys. And then you need a rim deterrent like we saw back in the day with Roy Hibbert. And Hassan, if he's engaged, can provide that. So I'll ask you before we start, is Hassan your guy? You know, I'm going to go off script from all our pre-pro notes and say no. And my guy's going to come in at level five here and our, our fifth reason And I'll tell you why then. And this is why I'm sort of changing my thoughts on Hassan. It's exactly what you just said, Ethan. The Cavaliers matchup, if Cleveland does stay with Kevin Love at center, I think that's unwinnable for this reason. And I've written about this in my columns at sunsentinel.com. The way you win a matchup like that is you are so dominant, so physical, so explosive, so fierce that the other team has to say uncle and has to bring in Tristan Thompson and has to play bigger against you if it's the Cavaliers. And my thing with Hassan this year is, and I'm almost using the recency factor here also, I don't know, Ethan, what's going on with him. 
I don't know if it's the bone bruise on the knee that's still there or some injury. I don't know if it's mental or psychological or something that he's having its differences with Eric Spolstra. But but going back even to the Knicks game we saw in New York on Friday, he's not explosive. He's you know I, I refer to this. He's throwing up his flippy dippy do kind of shots. He's not ramming the ball to the basket. So when I look at, at equations like that, or even any team going small against the Heat, perhaps they wind up at the Celtics and it's an Al Horford matchup or someone like that, or, or Toronto goes smaller and you have to guard Ibaka on the perimeter. Hassan's not making the other team pay. I don't know why. And to me, that's the most confounding part of the end of the season. Why isn't Hassan Whiteside dunking more? Why isn't Hassan Whiteside flexing more? Why isn't Hassan Whiteside explosive more? I'll defer to Mr. Whittingham and all his um, beautiful statistics and stuff there. But that's the point, Ethan, that I just don't understand anymore. What has happened to muscle flexing Hassan Whiteside? Because if he's going to shoot those dippy, slippy do shots, whatever you want to call them, Kevin Love can guard that. Anyone can guard that. He's not shoving you out of the way, ripping off your manhood, and making you limp back the other way down the court. That, to me, is the element that's missing. Yeah, and to me, the the most interesting bit of his season is the way that his minutes have changed. His minutes have gone down, we can now say, at the conclusion of the year, about seven per game, and obviously that's where the controversy comes from, was the sort of decrease in minutes in, in the end of games and in the fourth quarter. And we've seen about half his fourth quarters this year where he hasn't played, and it is kind of shocking that, you're right, Ira, his game has changed, but you still look at his numbers at the end of all of it, on a permanent basis, they're about the same as they used to be. So I I do kind of wonder where he is at at this point, and I don't think you can discount what happened with the public comments. And I know the next game he went out and he played at the end and he got an important offensive rebound, which for me would be his role to play. But I still think that Eric Spolstra in a series against Cleveland, maybe he stays out there in a series against Embiid, but he's got to guard him to the three-point line. I, I, I just think the idea that Hassan Whiteside's game can be picked on is something that I think that he'd have to worry about, not just with him, but on a bigger level. Because I think what you've seen in playoff basketball the last few years is teams with exaggerated game plans. And I, I always go back to Steve Kerr against Tony Allen, leaving him wide open in the corner and throwing mm-hmm. Andrew Bogut on him. I just see teams with the ability to scout, with the ability to figure out the ways to deploy those kinds of tactics in a seven-game series not necessarily leaving Whiteside alone, but trying to put somebody small on him or have him guard further out away from the rim. It's going to be difficult for him to figure out how to play in a series like this when the opposing coach will be looking for ways to expose him. And I'm going to ask you guys a question that might force you to pause the podcast and your listeners to pull over on the side of the road and give this deep consideration. But I'm going to ask this to both you guys. And this, to me, is among the most telling things about the Hassan Whiteside experience. Guys, when's the last time you saw a team double-team Hassan? Bring the double, feel they had to have the double, compelled were to bring the double. Think about that for a second. Wasn't it Hassan Whiteside when he was this compelling figure when he first arrived and was putting up triple doubles against the Celtics and the Bulls that teams were always running a second man at him? Can you guys, I mean, literally, if you want to pause here and go through video or something, when's the last time you saw someone routinely feel that they absolutely in their matchup had to bring a double team at Hassan Whiteside. 
and you would think that they would want to because, again, you would want to test him as a passer, mm-hmm. and, and nobody does it. And his assist numbers have gone up a little bit this year, but but you're right. I, I mean, I haven't – look, it's just an interesting argument here because, like Chris mentions, the, the per 36 numbers are the same. I mean, they're even a little better than, than mm-hmm. they've been. And yet this is an eye test thing, really. This is not a stats thing. It's an eye test thing. And it's just like you said, it, I, it, he's not making a consistent impact the way that he was – a couple of years ago, where again, you come out of a game and you're like, Hassan dramatically changed that game. And sure. because, and you know, he still has it in him because we did see it in that game against Philadelphia and against Embiid, and clearly gets so motivated for that. And that's one of the reasons why, again, I picked him because if they get Philadelphia, the advantage that Philly has over a lot of teams. If Whiteside is motivated for whatever reason, it could be personal pride or it could just be because he doesn't like MB. It doesn't matter what the reason is. If he gets motivated for that series and can play MB to a, even a draw, then the Heat have you know the Heat have a chance in that series. Now I love some of what you mentioned. Some of the names Philadelphia's added. I love what Philadelphia's done with its depth. Yes. I mean, a- adding Ilyasova and and, uh, and Bellinelli was huge for them. And and those are two guys that are going to play twenty plus minutes in the playoffs. But I think you have a chance against Philly if Whiteside plays him even. But you're right. The the other dynamic that Embiid has is is the ability to stretch out to the three point line. And so if that becomes a problem, then you could see perhaps Bam playing a little more or somebody who's a little bit more mobile in that sense but look i maybe i'm a little old school on this because uh, you know maybe i'm thinking like pat thinks on this which is why pat gave him 98 million dollars but i still think that a big in a playoff series can have a big impact and i still go back to that toronto series two years ago ira where i know valanchunas went down too but uh, you know if hassan had been healthy in that series i still think they win that series against the raptors uh he wasn't and they lost in seven games so I'm looking at it that way, and I also, you know, look at the fact that, you know, Whiteside has played, if you look at his numbers, reasonably well against Cleveland in the past. So I'm still holding out hope that he's going to have the kind of series that sort of justifies the contract and justifies the faith they put in him. But you're right. We haven't seen those kind of explosive moments. All right, let's move on to number four here, the fourth guy on our list, because he was picked fourth when I put up there in the poll. About 20% of people thought Josh Richardson was the most important player for the Heat in the playoffs. He's been identified by people outside of Miami, too, as as their best two-way player. But I wanted to go through some of the numbers here and see, Ira, if you can explain this, because clearly something has happened here. If you you go to – you start the season in in October, he averaged 11.7 points a game. November, he was at 7.6. But then December, he has this breakout. He plays 15 Mm -hmm. games in December. He shoots 55% from the field, 47% from three, 89% from the line while averaging four rebounds a game. And he averages 17.4 points a game. Like he had an incredible December and all the metrics bear it out. All the plus minus numbers, the offensive rating, the defensive rating, all of it was terrific. And then you look from December on Ira and it just starts to trail off. I mean, January was still relatively strong. He averaged 14 points, 42% from three, 42% overall. February averaged 14.9, 48%. 46 from three, but then March and April, 12.5 points in March, 10 points in April. He's shooting a little uh, over 43% over that period of time. He's still at about 40% from three over that period of time. Is it as simple as Dwayne showed up and Josh Richardson took a back seat, or is there something else going on there? You know what? I, one thing, and I know this sounds so simplistic, but this really is the factor in the playoffs. You get scouted more when you become a somebody. So I think there was a degree of them looking at what Josh Richardson does, where he wants the ball. I I know it almost sounds cliche, guys, that he showed up, quote-unquote, 
on the scouting report, but I think there's a degree of that also in the way he's going to go. So when I look at Josh, I say to myself, I always felt that his scoring was a bonus. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't appreciated when it showed up on cue and when it showed up when it was needed more. But to me, and I'll get to this in the fifth segment also, to me, you're going to have to have one designated, he's my defensive guy. We know Spolstra all year. And this, he, as you guys both know, being around the Heat, they don't campaign for postseason awards. They don't send me all kinds of trinkets and really good T-shirts and stuff like that. They just say the guy's going to do it on their own merit. But Eric Spolstra has spoken all year about, how, hey, Josh Richardson, he deserves votes for all defensive team, for one of the all defensive teams, if not first team. So I get all of that also. So to me, as much as Josh Richardson's offense has been coming down, has been sort of going the other direction, maybe that's sort of a compliment to him. But this is my question, and I'll get to this more in the fifth segment. Who's going to be the heat guy when you need a stop one-on-one when the other team, which is always going to happen in playoffs, goes ISO? Is it Josh Richardson? Is it Justice Winslow? Is it James Johnson? Is Josh Richardson, as much as Eric Spolstra says it, is he really that guy? Is he the guy that when I see DeMar DeRozan or Kyle Lowry, maybe even LeBron James or, or Boston, who are you, Jalen Brown right now, or maybe T- Jason Tatum or someone like that, who has the ball, who I'm going to feel confident. Okay, Jay Rich is isolated, but I feel good about this matchup. To me, that's what he has to be. If we're going to debate who's the key player for the Heat, do you believe that Josh Richardson will be the primary and critical perimeter defender? To me, that's the real Josh Richardson question, even more than his offense. Yeah, I think Richardson was probably hurt the most by Dwayne Wade's introduction, but I just think that, and we saw it in his rookie year as well, that I don't think he really is a player who at this point is going to put together six months like he had a December. I think he's not right. that he's not that level of player. And I think what he is is a really nice player and someone who I think we're talking about a, a team that is, I would say, have two of the worst contracts in the league in Whiteside and in Tyler Johnson and don't have a ton of value. I would say Josh mm-hmm. Richardson could probably represent value based off sure. the extension you signed him to, but I just don't think he's that quality of player. He can do it at times. He can do it for months, but for, for a six-month season, for a big playoff series. I don't know if game in and game out you're getting a top-level performance unless you're building a team around him, and I don't think if you're building a team around him, that team is very good. And Chris, that's why I wrote in my Sunset column a couple weeks ago on my Sunday column this exact point. That's the beauty of these playoffs. Are the Heat winning a championship? No offense, guys, but if we're still doing a podcast here in late May and June, I'll be more surprised than anyone. But if you can find out in the heat of the playoffs, is someone good enough? Is he able to step up to the moment? That's what we're going to see about some of the guys we'll talk about in the next segment. But more than anything, we'll see about Josh Richardson. Because if he's not, and that'll be a shame because you won more, as many playoff games as you can, then you might go into next season and go, you know what? This was an interesting ride. He was our starter now for as many as 81 games this season. But he's not a starting small forward on a championship contending team. That's the beauty of this upcoming playoff series and maybe beyond. You will really get to take measure of players in playoff situations. And the Heat, I think, who's the, you know what? If you were to ask in this podcast, who's the most important player to get a read on in a playoff series? I think Josh Richardson might be that guy. 
It's interesting you mentioned that too. In this sense, we didn't really get a feel for Josh two years ago in the playoffs because mm-hmm. he wasn't he wasn't healthy. He had hurt his shoulder. He was never really quite right during that playoff run, and he was coming off that second half of the season. As Chris said, he can have periods of time. The second half of his rookie season, he led the league in three point shooting, mm-hmm. um, and and he came into the playoffs and didn't shoot the ball well in the playoffs. And, and part of that might have been the shoulder, and part of it might have been, as, as you're talking about, Ira, that he was scouted a little bit. But one thing that is interesting, and their wins and losses this year, if you look at their splits, he is a bit of a tell. He shoots 43% from three in their wins. He shoots 33% from three in their losses. I, now, I'm sure there are probably some other players on the team that might have a similar type split, because obviously three-point shooting is critical to winning. But that is a, a pretty big disparity. When Josh is making his three-point shot, they tend to win. When he's not, they don't. So I think the other thing to look at here, you, you know, you mentioned who he'll guard. And, and clearly, I mean, he's somebody in the starting lineup that you're going to want to put on the best wing in most situations. But you look at the two matchups, he's probably the guy, and maybe you, you'll make a case for someone else when we get to number five here, but he's probably the guy who's going to see a lot of time on Ben Simmons. And even with Josh's length, there's a length issue there because there's a length issue against Ben Simmons in, in all cases. Sure. And then he's also going to get some turns against LeBron, although I don't think he would get the primary turn against LeBron, which, again, is something we're going to talk about. All right, so let's get to number five here. We're going to do these ones a little bit quicker, but what we did was before the pod, all three of us decided to sort of take – someone here or in my case it'll be a combination of someone's that we would say you know could be the x factor here and and for ira this person is actually going to be his choice because he hasn't chosen any of the other four so i will start with mine and then we'll, we'll get to, to your sure. guys here after that i'm going to go with a combination of olenic and ellington for this reason they are going to need to create as much space as they possibly can particularly if Dwayne is going to be playing heavy minutes or heavier minutes than he does during the regular season. And so I do think there are going to be some situations where Eric goes to essentially four guards. I mean, if you want to call Josh Richardson a guard, where you have Dragic out there with Wade and Ellington as well as Richardson, and they try to really space the floor against some of these teams. And again, especially if Philadelphia goes a little bit smaller by, say, putting Bellinelli at the three. And then we talk about Whiteside. I talk about how important he is, but... Kelly Olenek has been their best big in fourth quarters this year, and he's already shown that he can do it in the playoffs because he carried Boston in that game seven to get to the Eastern Conference Finals last year. So, so clearly he's comfortable in those moments. I know, you know, we talk about Whiteside, we talk about Wade, we talk about some of the more traditional players they have, but we have seen that, that Eric likes space in these situations, and so I could see a lot of minutes for Olenek and, and possibly even Ellington down the stretch. And Wayne can win you a game if he's having one of those nights where he's making five or six threes. And the other thing, guys, he's playing for a contract. So because we, we don't know what his future is going to be next season. So that plays into it, too. So I, I will put those two guys aside. I'll let Ira jump in with his. You know, my guy is and it's almost as I was listening to the first four, I got a little bit more clarity here. It's James Johnson. And the thing about James Johnson, and if you look at his statistics this year, there's been very little middle ground. He's either been really good or just god-awful. But very rarely has there been sort of something in between. If you look at his scoring this year, he has a four-point game followed by a 20-point game, a three-point game followed by a 23-point game, a five-point game followed by an 18-point game. He's been all over the place. But the thing is, you only have to win four games in a series to advance. Can you put four of those together? Because of all the elements we have discussed what you need, rebounding, defense, defense, three-point shooting, offense to keep up with another team, 
James Johnson can do all of those things at times as well as anyone on this team. And so when I look at it, the other point I was trying to make during the Josh Richardson segment was this. Who is going to be the Heat's man of the hour defensively when all the switches are done and it's mano a mano? He's the only one who gives you a chance against LeBron James. He could be the only one who gives you a chance against Ben Simmons. He was even in Toronto, and I know this is overstated here, but sort of looked as their LeBron stopper. To me, Justice Winslow is not big enough. Josh Richardson is not big enough when you get more of a brawny, lengthy kind of guy. So I think James Johnson can have the full package. I could see the Heat winning a seven-game series with James Johnson being the star by having three 20-point games and three three-point games. And you're going to have to ride the Johnson coaster, sort of like the beard comes, the beard goes, the hair comes, the hair goes. It's always looking different with James Johnson. But when James Johnson is the player that they felt was worth a four-year, $60 million contract last summer, we know he has those moments in him. We saw it at 30-11 and 11 last season. I think that he'd have to hope somehow they can conjure three or four of those James Johnson moments because we know defensively he will be also the defensive man of the hour. For me, the answer is Justice Winslow because I, I, it's something that I got into earlier, but it's the idea that you can't have a player on the floor that gets schemed out of the series. And, and while Justice Winslow over the course of the season had a three-point percentage that was respectable, it was actually pretty good when you, when you look at it on aggregate. I still don't think that there's going to be teams in the league that are going to trust the fact that Justice Winslow is actually a 39% three-point shooter. Mm-hmm. So I, I just imagine a series where you have Winslow and Whiteside on the floor at the same time. And there's going to be a lack of attention paid to Justice Winslow, and he's going to have to make the shot. He's going to have to account for the fact that teams aren't going to respect him and we're going to have to see how the series ends up folding when he's in the game because I think that Brett Brown or Tyron Lue, they're familiar with these tactics and they're going to dare Justice Winslow to make three-pointers and he's going to have to make them and there are times where it looks pretty good and there are times where it looks flatly terrible. So for me, if I'm sort of picking a secondary player beyond Dwayne Wade, I would say Winslow. All right, thanks to Ira for joining us. Always you can follow his work at Ira Heatbeat, that's on Twitter. He also has a Facebook page. Go to sunsentinel.com. You can't avoid Ira. He's everywhere, uh, will be everywhere during the playoffs. Also, you find him on NBA TV as well. If you want another way to find us, one thing I should have mentioned earlier in the podcast, download an app called Live Vote. You can find it on Google Play. Again, it's called Live Vote. Also Go on there. iTunes, also on the Apple Store. Oh, on iTunes. We don't want to forget that. We always actually we usually we usually prioritize our Apple people. So I wanted to make sure I got everybody else involved there too. But yes, on iTunes or on Google Play, download Live Vote. What we're going to be doing there is posting a YouTube version of the podcast and we're going to be posting questions directly related to the podcast. The reason you want to get involved in this now is down the road we're probably going to have some contests and other things to sort of uh, reward our listeners for listening. So download the app now. It's free, and you'll be part of it in the future. And as always, follow us at 5. That's the number 5, 5 Reasons Sports, at 5 Reasons Sports. Later in the week, we're going to be talking to Howard Beck from Bleacher Report. He's a national NBA writer. We're going to be talking about five storylines for the upcoming NBA playoffs, focusing in particular on players who are most on the spot. Also look for a Heat Stories episode coming up here pretty soon. So a lot of basketball. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. 
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.